So today we're going to continue what we started uh, last week. This is part two of what I should know about the gift of salvation. Uh, I kind of told my story at different times. Um, I was an atheist when I was 25 years old, and it was that year that I took this big radical step and placed my faith in Jesus Christ, and it, I'll tell you what, it had a huge impact on my life. Because when I was 25 years old, I received the gift that God had offered to me, um, and we call it the gift of salvation. So I want to talk more about that. Back in 1989, I had the privilege to uh, go to India with a good friend of mine who was a classmate in seminary who was a full-time missionary. And so he, had, he was born in India. He was a native Indian from New Delhi. And um, so I had a guided tour uh, while I was there. We did some sightseeing, which included a day trip to the Taj Mahal. That was probably the big deal. Our primary purpose was to participate in a week of evangelistic meetings in Calcutta, India. While we were in Calcutta, we got to visit Mother Teresa's orphanage and meet the Sisters of Charity and many of the children who, uh, who were there. I learned that nearly all of the kids there were there because their parents didn't want them. Their parents, gave, the two most common reasons that the kids were there is because they had experienced a birth defect when they were born or they were females because young girls weren't valued in their culture. And so sometimes families abandoned their babies. They left them. Sometimes friends would pick them up and take them to the or orphanage. If they were brought to the orphanage, it usually was at night because nobody, it was too embarrassing. And, um, and so orphanages like the, the Sisters of Charity took these kids in and eventually were able to provide homes for them, many of them in the U.S. and, and in Europe as well. Now, I recently read about a story from Mumbai, India, this took place in 2011, where 285 young girls were at a special ceremony where they received a new name. All the girls had been given the name Nakusa or Nakushi at birth. What does that mean? It means unwanted in Hindi. And so these 285 girls, all raised in orphanages in Mumbai, had the name unwanted. And so there was this plan to have a ceremony and to let the girls pick their new name. Uh, they picked names like prosperous, beautiful, good, or very tough. 285 girls came on this day, and they were all dressed up in their best outfits. And they had uh, barrettes and braids and bows in their hair, said the writer of this article. And on that day, each girl received a certificate with their official name. 
One of the girls who had been named Nakusa at birth by her grandfather said after she got her certificate, now in school, my classmates and friends will call me by my new name. And that makes me very happy. 285 girls started with an unwanted identity. And they were given a new identity. Didn't take away some of the impact probably of what unwanted would mean to them. But here's what I want us to know. If you are a follower of Christ, you were given a new identity. Do you know who you are? I asked you that question last week. Do you know who you are. Um, By way of review from last week, we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, and we just started with this verse, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. So the Apostle Paul is saying to the church at Ephesus, this is first century, it is by grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. Something you can't earn is something you don't deserve. That you've been saved, that is saved from the penalty of sin. We're talking about what we call eternal salvation. Um, Saved from the penalty of sin. Through faith, that is faith in Jesus Christ. And this is not from yourselves. It's not about you. It is the gift of God. A lot of confusion about that. It was a gift. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. There's nothing you can add to it. It's not by works. It's not by how good you are or how many good things you do because we would think we're better than other people. Some people would boast about it if that were true. So I'm going to review some observations that we made last time, I hope quickly here, about this gift of salvation. Number one, It is not based on our feelings or experience, not based on how we feel. There is no correct way on how you should feel if you have experienced salvation from God. And some people try to, they'll say things like, well, I don't feel saved. You don't have to feel saved. You don't have to. It's not about our feelings. It's not based on feelings. It's not based on whether I had some kind of spiritual or emotional experience. I didn't have much of an experience. It was still real. And, And over time, and sort of slowly and gradually, I began to see, yeah, this really is, this really is happening, and I'm really changing, and things are different on the inside. Number two, It's not progressive. Our salvation is not progressive. Our salvation doesn't improve or get better because it was perfect when given. It it can't um, lose anything. It can't gain anything. It is totally complete. Uh, One of the things, uh, one of the reasons these are important to me is because, so I came to faith at the age of 25. As a brand new believer, within one month, I was exposed to this. And this really made a lot of sense to me. This, this, what does this mean? What is my new identity in Christ? And, and I mentioned last week that if you take what the, what the New Testament tells us about this gift, 
there are at least 33 different things. It's not like a perfect number to count. It's just that there are many different things, and all together, not just one, all together they make up what we call the gift of salvation. Number three, it is not merited because there is no goodness or achievement in us that caused God to give his gift to us. You know, he didn't say, well, Jerry, you're just a cut above other people, so you get this. Nope, it's, there was nothing, there's no goodness in any one of us. There's no achievement that any one of us could do. It is a gift. Number four, it is eternal. It lasts as long as the merits of Christ's death on the cross. How long is eternal? How long is eternal life? Yet we keep coming up humanly with ideas that it could be taken away from me. No, it's a gift. And by faith, it's received. And you do not have the authority to change it. Um, it's eternal. When, when, when Jesus said in John 3.16 that God was sending his son, sending him, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, he meant for eternity. Um, number five, it's based on God's revelation, not on anyone's wishful thinking or emotional response. Um, God's revelation, it's based on truth, eternal truth. It comes with the authority of God. It's not going to waffle. It's not going to change. It's not going to depend on my circumstances. It's not going to depend on whether I feel like I'm a, having a bad day. It's based on the authority of the Word of God. And then lastly, uh, number six, it's accomplished by God alone. Nothing more needs to be added or can be added. Sometimes Christians are tempted to want to sort of add something to it. You know, I just don't feel right having this gift and don't have to do anything in return. And so what we end up with this viewpoint of, well, believe and be good. And if you're good enough, if you believe enough and you're good enough, you know, you can be saved. And sometimes we get this idea that I, to keep my salvation, I have to believe and be good. I have to believe and be good. Or otherwise, it'll slip away from me. This is accomplished by God. It was accomplished at the cross. And we engage in it uh, by faith in Jesus Christ. And we, get the, we are given a gift. And yes, it makes a difference how we live as children of God. But that's different than starting a relationship with God. That's different than being saved from the penalty of sin. Okay, now to our talk today. Number one, our gift of salvation stands on a secure foundation. You've probably gathered that already, but um, that's exactly what the scripture teaches. We have a foundation that is certain and secure. It is eternally secure. Think about that. Your salvation is eternally secure. Now, I know that there are Christians who don't agree with that. I think the scriptures are really clear. Um, and, and here are some of the reasons why. So 
We're going to start with uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. And the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, by the grace God has given to me, I laid a foundation. He's talking about his ministry of sharing the gospel with the Corinthians. And he says, as a wise builder, he being the evangelist, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is our secure foundation. And our salvation rests on him and no one else. And this, it continues. If anyone builds on this foundation, that is the gift of my salvation, using gold, silver, if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, or costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is. So he's using this imagery of building and um, building on a foundation. And there are different kinds of building materials. And some are really valuable, like gold, silver, and costly stones. Some are not so valuable, um, like wood, hay, or straw. Their work will be shown for what it is because of the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. So he's talking about a day that's coming. It's a judgment day for a, for a Christ follower, the judgment seat of Christ. And this is not for condemnation. This is for entrance into heaven, and it's for rewards. And uh, we're all going to have a test. There will be a test, so count on that. The day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. Next slide. If what he has built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but, it, but yet will be saved. That's what I wanted to show you. Some things in our life that we build our life on have eternal significance and eternal value before God. It's those things that we invest in our relationship with God, in obedience, living by faith, in the power of the Holy Spirit, serving God. Those things are going to last eternally and be recognized by God. Some things, when we're self-focused and trying to live a Christian life in our own strength, are going to be worthless when we stand before God. And some people are going to be so off. This is possible now. Some people are going to be so off course, even though they are children of God and have been born again. It's, they're going to, they will be saved, even though only as escaping through the flames. When they're tested, they won't have much to show for as far as did they follow Jesus? Yes, they'll be saved because the gift is still the same. The gift is still there. They don't deserve it. They never did deserve it. So we have a foundation that is certain and secure. That's not all. Next, we are now free from condemnation. Romans 8, 1 and 2. Free from condemnation. God does not condemn you. God will not condemn you in the future. That is uh, a tactic that God's enemy uses with Christians to cause them to feel condemned. 
There is a role of the Holy Spirit where he convicts us of sin, just like a child with a parent. child disobeys. There could be a little guilt because they violated what mom and dad said, and they have guilt, and they need to be reconciled back with their parents. That's the same with a follower of Christ. We're children of God, and sometimes we disobey, and, and we need to be reconciled. We need to make it right with God. We need to come back and tell God that we're sorry and ask for forgiveness. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free. You have been set free from the law of sin and the law of death. Now, that doesn't mean that you still can't sin. It doesn't mean you won't be tempted to sin. But there is this power of sin that Christ defeated, and you don't have to live there. Because without Christ, you do have to live there. You have resources because of this gift of salvation to walk with God. We're going to get there. We're going to talk about that more in a little bit. Next, we've been made citizens of heaven. You have a citizenship in heaven. You have papers that you belong in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Maybe you need a ceremony where you get this citizenship paper so, so that you know how real it is. Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a citizenship. It's an eternal citizenship. How do citizens act? Uh, in the first century, it was really a big deal to be a citizen of the Roman Empire because they had benefits that nobody else had. Well, you are a citizen of heaven. Way more important than being the citizen of the United States. Next, we are light in the Lord. What does that mean? Kind of foreign to us. Ephesians 5.8 says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. Before I became a follower of Christ, whether I thought so or not, I lived in the sphere of darkness because I did not have a genuine relationship with Christ. After I placed my faith in Christ, now I live in the sphere of light, in the sphere of truth. And now I'm called to walk in that light. And... I can, I can see that light and experience that light in God's Word. The next one's really foreign to us. We are a holy priesthood. That is really far from the American culture. Um, but the imagery comes from the Old Testament. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. And Peter writes, first century, as you come to him, the living stone. And he's talking about as you begin a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so there's this metaphor, the living stone is a person, and his name is Jesus. He was rejected by humans. They wanted to crucify him, but chosen by God and precious to God. 
you also, like living stones, you're, you're like a living stone, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So there's an imagery here of, of God making this building. It's a spiritual house, and, and uh, Jesus is, is the foundation. And then when a person comes to faith in Christ, a stone is added to the spiritual house. And every time a person comes to faith, a, a living stone is added to the spiritual house, or we might even call it a spiritual temple. It's not a physical thing. It's a spiritual structure. It's imagery to help us understand and um, to be a holy priesthood. Holy, what does that mean? It means to be set apart to serve God. Things were made holy in the Old Testament at the temple or at the tabernacle so that things could be cleansed and then used to serve God. Things as simple as a bucket and a shovel, a bucket that's going to carry out ashes at the temple needed to be holy, and so it had to be cleansed ahead of time so that it could be set apart for God. We have been set apart for God to be a holy priesthood. Priests are go-betweens. They're mediators. A priest is to represent men and women and children to God. And then to re represent God to humans. That's what a priest is supposed to do. That's what we're supposed to do. We are representatives. We are go-betweens. We help people learn about Jesus. We help people understand the good news. We help people see truth. We show people by the way we live. That's what a believer priest does. Um, offering spiritual sacrifices. That's about worship. Offering spiritual sacrifices like prayer, like worship, singing this morning. That's a spiritual sacrifice. Um, like giving thanks. When, when you pause at home or in a restaurant and you return thanks to God, that's offering up a spiritual sacrifice to God. Um, when you share a personal faith story, what God has done in your life with another person. When you give a financial sacrifice in obedience to God, it's not just going through the motions because you're doing it because by faith you're following Jesus, that's a spiritual sacrifice. A few verses later in verse 9, first. Peter says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Royal because you're related to a king. You're in God's family. And so this priesthood is royal. God's special possession that you may declare. This is why. This is purpose. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. We are to declare Make known the excellencies of God, who God is and what he's done for us. And that's going to include the gospel, the good news. This is the church on mission. That's just another way to say it. It's evangelistic to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness. 
Okay, secondly, our gift of salvation places us in a new relationship with the Holy Spirit. Things changed. When I placed my faith in Christ, when I was 25 years old, I didn't have a big emotional experience, but something was happening on the inside, and I didn't know how to explain it. It took me a few days to be able to verbalize what was happening. Um, whether you put your faith in Christ at the age of four or the age of 14 or the age of 44 or the age of 84, when you place your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit came to live in you. He indwells you. Um, John 14, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. So Jesus is saying, after he leaves, he's going to ask God, the Father, and the Father is going to send someone like him, somebody of the same nature, and it's going to be the Spirit of truth. Verse 17, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. He's not in you right now, first century, but he will be in you. Things are going to change. So when Jesus and his disciples were walking the earth, they were living under the Old Testament. The New Testament was not inaugurated until the death of Jesus Christ. And then on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, God answered this prayer. And God sent the Holy Spirit on the followers of Jesus in, in Jerusalem. And they received the Holy Spirit. And they were indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And every time somebody comes to faith since then, they are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. You don't have to feel it or experience it. It's true. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20, the Apostle Paul writes the church at Corinth. This church struggled greatly. They lived in a difficult culture. It was a very immoral culture, and it was so easy for people to come to faith in Christ and then to fall back into the way people lived. And Paul writes, flee from sexual immorality. That's kind of important for us in our culture because we're surrounded by sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. You get kind of a double problem with sexual sin. It's a little bigger deal. Are all sins equal? No. Any sin will keep you from God. Some sins have way more consequences than others. Verse 19, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? So Paul is saying, don't you know that? Don't you remember that? How did you forget that? He's saying it's not logical to pursue the immoral lifestyle because the Holy Spirit is in you. And he's going to go on to say that that's going to, when, when, you, when you commit immorality, you're causing 
God to be involved with you, to, to be present with you. Verse 19, uh, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have, next slide, received from God, you are not your own, you were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. He says, you're not your own. When Jesus died for you, he paid the penalty for your sin. He purchased your redemption. You now belong to him. Jesus purchased you out of slavery to sin, and you are his, and you are in his family, and you are born again. And the logical response is, you're not, you were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. Your body belongs to God. You just don't do whatever you want with it. Okay, next one is we've, we've been baptized by the Holy Spirit. We've been baptized by the Holy Spirit. This is another one that there's some confusion today in the church, in the modern church. Um, let, me, let me just, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 just as the body, though one, has many parts, body of Christ, the human body and the body of Christ, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were, here it is, for we were all baptized, all, not special people, not a second blessing of, or a second addition of grace later in your Christian life, all were baptized into one spirit, when you placed your faith in Christ, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we're all given one spirit to drink. A simple explanation of the baptism of the spirit is when God took you out of the sphere of the world and he placed you into the body of Christ. He placed you into the spiritual body of Christ, the church. You were immersed into Christ's body. You became a part of it, and um, you died with Christ, you were buried with Christ, and you were raised with Christ. That's your spiritual position before God. Um, next, we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church, again, now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ, our standing before God. He anoints us, sets his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. The Holy Spirit is a guarantee of e your eternal life. But the, the Holy Spirit has marked you for God because you belong to God. And um, you have been sealed. In the first century, if the Roman emperor uh, wanted to display authority about something like a document or a command or a law, that document would be written up and he would sign it and then he would, they would put a wax seal on the scroll and then he would take his signet ring and then he would mark it with his seal. 
And that showed this, this comes with the authority of the Roman Empire. And um, the Holy Spirit comes with the authority of God, and so does the gift of salvation. Okay, jumping down to the next one, we've been gifted by the Holy Spirit. We've been gifted. We have different gifts according to the grace given to us, Romans chapter six, or 12. There are four New Testament passages that mention spiritual gifts. A spiritual, gifts, a spiritual gift is a God-given ability given to every believer for the purpose of serving the church. That's what a spiritual gift is. It's a God-given. It is God-energized. It's not a natural ability. You all have natural abilities, but it's, natural abilities are not spiritual gifts. The only thing that I could ever say with authority as a spiritual gift are those mentioned in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, or 1 Peter 4. If they're listed in the New Testament, then they are a spiritual gift. Uh, Romans chapter 6, 12, verse 6 says, We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. It's the Holy Spirit who determines what gifts are given. If your gift is prophesying, these are just examples, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, some of you have this gift, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. All of us are to give. Some people have a spiritual gift that relates to giving. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. We're all to show mercy, and yet some people have the spiritual gift of showing mercy. Um, okay, we're coming to the last section, number three. Our gift of salvation makes it possible to live for Christ. That's why I've spent so much time... Um, helping us see all that salvation entails, how rich the concept of the gift of salvation is. Um, our gift of salvation makes it possible to live the Christian life. Now, for some of you, that's like a no-brainer. Sometimes, though, people get discouraged, and they falsely believe that it's impossible to live the Christian life. The truth is, it is impossible to live the Christian life in your own strength because you, didn't, you, aren't, you don't have the equipment to live the Christian life. Only the Holy Spirit working in you, only the Spirit of Christ in you can enable you to live the Christian life. So a couple of passages here as we come to this last section. Um, we are to present ourselves humbly to God. This is what we need to do to be able to live out what we've been asked to live, okay? Present ourselves humbly to God. Romans chapter 12. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Just reminded me when I saw the sisters. When you see terms, 
and I'm, I fail to mention this, like priesthood, that's not about being male. It's about, it's for male and female, the holy priesthood. It's not just a guy thing, okay? It's, there are terms like that in the New Testament that refer to male and female. This is one of them because, like the King James says, I urge you, therefore, brethren. It's not male. It's for the whole church. In view of God's mercy, well, what's God's mercy? Well, it's the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. What is the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans about? Well, it's about your identity in Christ. It's about what the death of Christ has accomplished for you. And since that's true, and by the way, in the first 11 chapters, there are only two commands, two things given to do. One is to present your bodies as instruments of God for righteousness. That's one command. The other one is do not present your life, your, your body parts to, to do evil as instruments of wickedness. That's it. Everything else is what we call positional truth. It's about identity. No commands. Now we have something to do in Romans chapter 12. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice. Jesus gave his body to you as a sacrifice for your sins. He covered it all. Now, logical response is to offer yourself back to God, to give yourself totally to God, to surrender your life to him. Um, it's to be as a living sacrifice. In the Old Testament, they had dead sacrifices after they killed them and put them onto the altar and offered them to God. This is the imagery is from there, but this is a living sacrifice, and that's you and I offering ourselves to God. And you don't have to get burned over it. And this is holy and pleasing to God. This is true and proper worship. This is where proper worship begins when you're sold out for God. It is pleasing to God. And even that makes a difference in a worship service. On when you come with your heart fully ready to worship, as opposed to just going through the motions. Okay. Secondly, very simply, we are to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. We are to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. And Paul writes, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. It's really simple. Paul says something not to do and something to do. Something not to do is when someone is drunk, they're under the influence of something else like alcohol or it could be drugs or some chemistry issue under the influence. And so that person is not in control. Something else is influencing their behavior. And what the Apostle Paul says, instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit be the one influencing your behavior. The issue is control. Let the Holy Spirit be in control of your life. So, how can one be filled with the Holy Spirit? How can you be filled today? 
Maybe you are. Maybe you're not sure. How can you be filled? Well, we can start with confession. The reason is, is because God likes to work with clean instruments. That's how he likes to do it. He likes clean instruments. And so there needs to be a cleansing. 1 John 1.9. This is written to believers, those who already have experienced the gift of salvation. This is not how to be saved. This is for Christ followers. He's, and and it's, a, it's a wonderful promise. If, condition, we confess our sins, he, that is God, is faithful and just. He follows through on his promises and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so God is saying, Christian, if you mess up, I know you're not perfect, but I've made, I've made a way for you to get it right and to do a do-over, to start again. And what I want you to do is I just want you to be honest with me. I want you to admit your failure and ask for forgiveness. I'll tell you what, I'm going to forgive you, God says. I guarantee that. I'm going to cleanse you from your sin. And you get a fresh start, a clean start. And that's where we want to be. And then just ask God to fill you with his spirit. This is real simple. You can ask God in prayer for him to fill you with his spirit. Um, you know, we have this command, be filled with the spirit. So is it God's will for you to be filled with the spirit? I think so. 1 John chapter 5, verses 14, as a reminder, and 15, John writes, first century, this is the confidence we have in approaching God. So when you come to God in prayer, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Is it his will that you be filled with the spirit? Yes. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked from him. So, if you have confessed your sins before God, if you ask God to fill you with his spirit, God says he will answer. And, and, and that means he has answered. And it's not about, did I feel something? Do I feel differently? Maybe you will. You probably will in a, in a matter of time. It may not take long that you, you will feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm okay with God. And um, so when, when I know that according to God's word, I am filled and now I'm um, under the control of the Holy Spirit, then I just move ahead with my day one step at a time, relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, just to seek to Christ, to walk with Christ by faith. And this is really about, do you trust what God says about you? Do you take God as, at his word? It's, it's about living by faith. And then um, pursue this lifestyle daily. It's just, it's just make this part of your, your, your life. Make it your thought processes every day. I want to keep short accounts with God. I'm not perfect. I'm going to mess up. But when I do, I'm going to get right with God. I'm going to confess my sin. 
And then I'm going to lean right back into and yield to God through his spirit. And I can, I can ask him to fill me. Galatians 5.16 says, I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. When you're walking in the power, when you're living in the power of the Holy Spirit, he's not going to take you so that you can do your self-centered stuff. He's going to take you outside of that so that he can enable you to follow Christ, to be obedient to God's word. So remember, it's possible to live for Christ if we use the resources God gives us. Philippians 4.13, I can do all this. I can, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. All things, all the things that he wants me to do, not all the things that I want to do, but all the things that he wants me to do, I can do them with the strength of Jesus. So, just want to go back. Who are you? Do you know who you are in Christ? Does it really make any difference to you? Not seeing this, not understanding this brings a whole lot of confusion, discouragement, and failure in your walk with Christ. Losing focus of your identity in Christ, who you are in Christ, leads to a self-centered lifestyle. You just get off course, and pretty soon you're tracking without God. And the enemy does not want you to understand what God has said about who you are. It's not just one thing. It's all of these things together. And then you can do all things through Christ that he wants you to do. Let's stand together for prayer. Father in heaven, we just uh, pause before you and we, we give you thanks for the gift of our salvation. It's easy to take it for granted. And yet... The gift that you've given us is so rich and so significant and so meaningful. And it helps us to see things the way they really are. And it helps us to have the courage to walk with you and the confidence to walk with you and to realize how much you love us. And we just say, thank you, God. And God, help us to take this information, this knowledge about who we are, not so that we're smarter sinners, but so that we can walk with you, we can keep in step with you just one day at a time. Help us each wherever we are to keep short accounts with you for Jesus' sake. Amen.